0: Hey everyone, this is Chad. I'm the founder and CEO of mission.org and the host of Mission Daily, the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Mission Daily was recently selected as best of 2018 by Apple for a reason. In every single episode, you're going to learn actionable strategies that you can apply to your life to become healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This is your number one daily podcast for accelerated learning. It was selected as best of 2018 by Apple, and it's made possible by our world-class listeners. That's you. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Chad Grills, and in today's episode, we have a very special guest. Today's guest is none other than Marissa Meyer. Marissa is one of the most successful CEOs and technologists of all time. She's a graduate of Stanford University, and she's one of the early team members who helped build Google. And on top of that, She went on to become CEO of Yahoo, where she led the company to a successful acquisition by Verizon. So maybe you've heard all that before, but what you haven't heard is the stories and the lessons learned that she shares here. So get ready to hear some stories about the early days at Stanford, Google, Yahoo, and then stick around to the end to learn more about her new venture, Lumi Labs. Enjoy. Marissa, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So when people ask what you do now, how do you answer that?
1: Uh, well I have a new startup, Lumi Labs, and yeah, we're working on building out products. We've hired about 12 people nice. and we're on our way. So it's fun to be a first-time entrepreneur after all these years.
0: I love it. So you are doing a startup labs that's focused on media and the future of AI. Is that how you would describe it or
1: Lumi Labs is a working title. We're essentially founding a company, but we cool. want to have a deliberate period of experimentation. Where we try a lot of different things and we see what we really get excited about, what our friends and family and limited betas get excited about, and then we will ultimately release a product coming out of that. And so, and a lot of the areas that we're very interested in, they all have to do with applying AI to everyday tasks, but mostly sure. mostly media tasks.
0: I like that. So when people are asking you right now, what are you excited about in Lumi Labs? Is there anything you can share? Specifically, maybe?
1: Sure. I mean, we're looking a lot at how do people relate to each other? And, you know, how can you make the act of connecting with someone actually more frictionless?
0: I like that a lot. So, Lumi Labs and media and AI and machine learning, these are topics that you've been focused on and learning about for. 20 years maybe? Or...
1: Yeah, I, my degrees at Stanford were both in artificial intelligence. So symbolic systems and computer computer yeah, science? Symbolic systems and computer science, but I did specializations in AI in both.
0: With your time at Stanford and everything you were learning, was there a particular teacher or moment that kind of turned you on to machine learning and AI? Or
1: I think my, there were a lot of phenomenal teachers, but I would say that for me, I came to Stanford thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And then I, when I got into the program, I realized that my interest in the brain actually was a lot more in how it learned. How do people learn? How do they reason? How do they express themselves? And it was a lot less about just the physicality of what does this part of the brain sure. do? What does that part of the brain do? How do you solve ailments in it? And so I started looking at you know, what were some things that Stanford did particularly well and were really unique to the Stanford experience. And I came across this major symbolic systems that really was captured in this interdisciplinary major exactly what I was interested in.
0: Sure. So when people talk about machine learning now, do you feel like it's overhyped? For instance, people call everything AI that's not really AI. Do you have a bone to pick with those folks or do you generally think that more interest, more hype in the space is a good thing? Where do you weigh in on that?
1: I think that it is important to understand that systems have to learn sure. to be intelligent or ML, machine learning. Algorithms um, can't just, be called AI. No, it just yet. can't no. be the case that it's smart, because right. there's a lot of algorithms that are profoundly smart. Right? Google search, like the fact that it can search over a trillion URLs and find the exact one you're looking for, that's almost so smart it's magic. Sure. And there are some elements of AI being built into it now. But even back in the early days of Google, there wasn't necessarily classic AI. There was no machine that was learning to do things we hadn't programmed it to do. Right. It's just that the exhaustiveness of the breadth of information being searched, and the quickness made it seem as like if. it was smart and as if it was it was as if it was learning something. So it's important to have that distinction. I think in terms of AI, the bigger thing that I worry about is there's a lot of people who are working on thinking about projections into the future. What are the moral implications of AI? What would happen if the AI did this or that? And the hypotheticals. And I think it's important to think through those issues, because some of them are very weighty. But at the same time, it's also important to realize where the state of the industry and the state of the art is today. Right. And we're pretty far from that, at least from my vantage point.
0: Definitely, it seems like there's so many there's so much low hanging fruit in terms of lives that can be saved or lives that can be improved from machine learning and AI that putting the brakes on it now would be maybe uh, a mistake. So you mentioned the early days at Google. How did you first find the company? How did it first come onto your radar?
1: I had spent the summer of 1998 working for the Union Bank of Switzerland, and I worked in their research lab. And the researcher I was working with, a gentleman named Matthew Chalmers, was building a technology that looked at where people went on the web, basically it was a little companion that sat alongside the browser, Sure. and basically did collaborative filtering. So if one user went and visited sites A, B, and C, and later someone visited site B, we would recommend sites A and C, and we would do you know all kinds of weighted calculations to come up with the best collaborative filtering. And the bank was interested in this because it helped their traders in the mornings, in theory, come up to speed that much faster sure. in terms of the information. When i came back from switzerland i was hired to lecture for the first time i had been a prolific teaching assistant at stanford for the introductory programming courses but i had never taught so i was lecturing for the first time came back talked to my mentor eric roberts about it and said you know look i just got back in the country i'm really excited to teach for the first time he said tell me about your research this summer i told him about the project and he said oh wow he's like there's these two guys on the fourth floor of gates building (laughs) They're doing what you're doing, except they're not looking at where people go on the web. They're looking at where they could go on the web in terms uh, of the link structure. And they're doing very similar computations. It's like, And they just dropped out to do a startup, and I can't remember <laughs> what it's called.
0: That was right at the time and, where they're transitioning from Backrub to Google? or
1: Yeah, and I just said, you know, and I'd, I'd give Eric a hard time that he couldn't remember the name Google, but I just said, <laughs> you know, Eric, I just got back in the country. I'm teaching for the first time. I've got a very full plate. Like I can't mess around with a startup now, which is was actually fortuitous because I think if I had reached out in September of 1998 when we were having that conversation, it would have been way too early for Google. They were just right. getting started and established with the company. A bit chaotic, um, maybe. And I <laughs> I'm probably not ready to hire you sure. know a new grad or or take someone on who could only work part time, cetera. And then fast forward to April. I was busy in my job hunt and got an email from one of the early Googlers who had gotten a list of graduating students that they should talk to from one of the professors at Stanford. And my name was on that list. So he said, you're one of the people that I'm told that we should be talking to. And when I read the description of the company, I was like, wait, this is that company. This is that company (laughs) that Eric talked to me about. So even though I had... It was the height of the bubble, first internet bubble, and I had lots and lots of job offers. I remember thinking like, oh, like that company sounded interesting even back then when Eric couldn't remember the name. And so I should make time to go talk to them now.
0: How was the climate and culture, how did it view startups at that time? Was that something that was a popular thing to do or were people encouraging you in that direction or did you get a lot of pushback when you wanted to join?
1: I think that it was something where a lot of people who are graduating with computer science degrees, it was sort of expected that at some point they'd go to a startup. Right. In fact, I even remember I was debating between, in the end, Google and McKinsey and also some a teaching offer at Carnegie Mellon, etc. cetera. And as I was looking at the different opportunities, there was one point and I was talking to Eric Roberts about it. And he said, you know, in this day and age, given like the internet and everything that's happening and the way startups have really come back. And, you know, the forefront with Yahoo and et cetera, all really leading the charge. He's like, no one would be surprised if you went to a startup. And if you wanted to have that experience, like you're the most technical, you know, you're going to be now right after you graduate. And so, you know, this might be if you want to do the startup thing, now is kind of the time or a great time to do it.
0: It sounds like sage advice. Not all of us are that lucky. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we work hard enough to get a mentor like that. How has mentorship like that been a part of your career, been a part of your life?
1: You know, for me, I would say my path on mentorship has been very organic. Over the course of my career, I've been approached by people, and sometimes they'll be very overly formal. Will you be my mentor? You know, and, and try and structure meetings and put a lot of structure around it. And to me, I've always at any given time had several mentors Kind of helping me on different facets sure. of what I want to be working on or, or growing in. And it's always been related to the task at hand, right. as opposed to just like, you know, somebody at a different company or in a completely different yeah. time or place, you know, helping and or being someone who you can bounce ideas off of. So I personally think that, you know, the right mentors often present themselves. Right. And as the mentee, you need to do the work. Right. And really, you know, make sure that you're asking good questions and setting things up to have a lot of learnings. The perfect, well, to yeah. have a lot of good learnings from that mentor's experience. Sure. But I'm not necessarily dogmatic about how you approach mentorship.
0: So, was there a moment or early story from Google that you've never shared before that, in looking back on it, you kind of view that as the inflection moment when you decided to really go all in, or maybe it was clear how big Google was going to be? Was there a single moment like that, or anything you can look back on?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, like it was, you know, it was fast and furious at the time in terms of work on the startup. I will say, I remember I negotiated for my offer, got my offer, had to pick it, had to sign it quickly because I told myself I would decide by May 1st. And then when I couldn't get to an answer, I gave myself an extension. I was like, okay, (laughs) I've got to like really, you know, decide something quickly. And in that whole thing, I knew I wanted to teach at Stanford that summer. I'd already been hired to teach a summer course. And I knew that I wanted to go to Europe and backpack for a little bit. And so I negotiated with Larry and Sergey to go backpacking for two months in the fall. And that changed my offer. (laughs) And then of course, like in the frenzy of a startup, like that two month backpacking trip, like never happened. There was always too much to do. And instead I took about a two week trip or maybe like a week and a half trip. And on that trip, I was in Zurich because I went back to see some of my friends that I had done research with the previous year. And when I was there, I went into a cyber cafe and I saw someone using Google. And at first, you know, you walk yeah. past it and it's almost like seeing someone with your university logo and sweatshirt. Like when you're at the, that university, right. you see it all the time. And then you're like, wait, but like, we're not there. Like, what is it doing here? Yes, well, I was so used to seeing the Google homepage and the Google results page at first. I was like, uh, and then I was like, wait, I'm in Switzerland. Like this, this, this person's using working. this little project that we're working on like yeah. half a world away. That's when I realized really how quickly a product that worked really well could scale, yeah. and how quickly and how fast its reach could grow.
0: Did you share that story with Larry and Sergey when you
1: came back? Yes, I mean, like we, I, I talked about it with them extensively when we got back because basically we knew that, you know, search was basically second on the internet only to mail, right? In terms of overall usage, and basically, over time, it's been about one in every twenty pages or so. That people view on the web happens to be a search results page. So, about 5% of the time, people are searching when they're on the internet. Uh, But the fact that they were using us to search was actually like noteworthy. So, I wasn't surprised to see a search (laughs) up on like a, you know, in the cyber cafe of 20 computers. You'd expect at least one screen to have search results on it. But it was surprising that it was our search results.
0: Yeah, that's really, really cool to hear. So, at what point in Google's trajectory were you? probably like most overwhelmed is there because with startups, people get stressed, people get overworked. Was there a moment like that for you? And how did you get past it? How did you fix things? Or maybe, yeah, like reorient yourself, maybe?
1: I don't know if it was a really a reorientation. But I do remember, you know, there were lots of periods where things were a lot of hard work. right? But I do remember we had gotten the Netscape contract the day before I started. And then about a year later, we managed to land the Yahoo! contract. And And at the the same time... Just
0: real quick, for people that might not be up to speed with that, so the Netscape contract, that was the first licensing contract, the first big one? Right. Where
1: basically Google would be one of five search engines offered in its rotation in its search center. And the next year, basically Yahoo! was the biggest internet site by far, and they swapped from Inc to me powering them to Google. So we were basically, you know, we, this was major our, victory. A, a major victory for us and a big shot for us. Simultaneously, because we weren't even sure if we'd be able to get the Yahoo contract. It was something we courted for that entire year. We also had been trying to create the world's largest search in, uh, index. And we had been crawling a billion pages
0: of books, right? Or uh, not or... of
1: books of, of actual web pages. Okay, But for gotcha, gotcha. comparison, we the previous summer our index had about thirty million pages.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So
1: we were basically we had grown the index and the capabilities of our crawler and our algorithms by about thirty x. Let alone with the traffic increases, because actually, you know, there's two dimensions of growth, right? There one we're growing the index, the other is we're growing users, and so then it basically came to pass that we were like, okay we're going to launch the Yahoo partnership and what we called the Giga index, the billion page index on the same day with two press releases on the wire. And it basically meant that we all were there and we didn't leave the office for about four days Wow! leading up to it. And we barely had time to sleep. We were like, you know, sleeping in shifts. And like when you're doing like strategic <laughs> sleeping where you're like, you can be asleep for these two hours but not those two hours, like, you know, it's you know, it's rough. And the morning of the launch, It was back in the day when you actually loaded up press releases on the wire. And so the PR team had loaded up the two press releases the night before. They were going out at six in the morning that Google had a billion page index and that Google had won the Yahoo partnership. And at about 4 a.m., we realized we had two data centers, one West Coast, one East Coast. And we had everything prepared on the West Coast. But then we needed to be able to serve Yahoo's traffic out of our East Coast data center, which meant we needed to do a cache fill to make our search snappy. But we'd fill the cache by doing basically a load test and hitting it with a lot of queries from the West Coast, or we needed to be able to serve our new big index out of the East Coast. And the problem is that both of them were going to use our cross-country bandwidth. So we actually had to make a choice, like right. basically we could either fill the cache and meet our obligations to Yahoo and, and sort of hopefully fulfill our promise in terms of having really fast search. Or we could have the billion page index there and the 6 a.m. press releases presumed that both would be true and there wasn't enough time and enough bandwidth available on that link to do it. I was so tired. We had moved into this office that weirdly had a women's sauna in one of the women's locker rooms. And since I hadn't slept in so long, I thought, okay, maybe if I just go and relax in the sauna for 10 minutes, (laughs) even though it's not really sleep, I'll feel like I've slept and be a little bit more, you know, more revived for this long day ahead. So I remember I, I, I went in, I set like a 10 minute timer to be in the sauna and about seven minutes in someone came and got me and they said like, look, we've discovered this problem. Like we can't do both the cash fill and the index transfer. Like there's just not enough capacity. We've got to get founder input on this. Right. And Larry had gone home to be ready for Press interviews and everything that was undoubtedly going to come the next morning. Sergey was there overseeing the development and the execution of all this the night before. He had gone to sleep under his desk. It's so like <laughs> I had to go and like wake Sergey up at four in the morning. I was like, okay, yeah, like which one? Because we can't make them both true. <laughs> you know, I remember that was like a really intense moment where it was it was ambitious. And by about noon, we had gotten every we had gotten both of them done. Sure. But as we went live at six in the morning, we had the cash fell. Completed, so our search stayed fast. But we copied the billion-page index over over the next, you know, four to six hours.
0: That's exciting to say the least. So it sounds like you had a world-class technical team. Was that fair to say at the beginning? Yeah, I
1: mean, we had we had tremendous a tremendous technical talent.
0: Was it a situation where, despite that expertise in terms of technical talent, that you still needed to learn things that nobody knew about yet? Because you're kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of different fields there, where the futures being written as you go. So was that a situation where you were trying to learn all this stuff as you went, or was it like, no, we know how to do everything?
1: No, I mean we're definitely there were definitely times when we were inventing new things. Like yeah. you know, we needed we had set up our data centers so differently than other companies. Everyone else was using these big mainframes. Mm-hmm. We were buying off the shelf computers, pulling the boxes off them, loading them into racks. And basically running in like in a single refrigerator sized box, about 80 different <laughs> computers. And that has all the kinds of problems with heat, right. with you know, power with all kinds of with all kinds of elements on it. And interestingly, because of the setup, we also needed all like really big switches. So we would, you know, we would go to Cisco with our spec for what we needed in terms of a switch, and they'd be like, what are you doing? Like, who needs this? And we were like, wait, like, we really do need this, yeah. right? And um, so that would definitely, there was a lot of amazing work done early course of Google because there were a lot of things that had to be invented. If you think of it as a search engine, not as a search engine, but as like a steam engine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our traffic from those early days would grow like 100,000 times over. Our index would grow in, that t- in the sp- span of a year 30 times over, but in the span of, <laughs> You know, the rest of time, like 30,000 times over. And so, if you think of it as an actual engine, it was an engine where, in the course of five years, it had to work millions of times harder and be millions of times more efficient. And so, th- those kinds of leaps in optimization, in compute power, and capabilities, in how you handle the data and what's in memory. Right. And all the different techniques, there were tons of things that were invented You know, on the technical side, MapReduce, and you know, a lot of the different things that are now industry standard and taught everywhere, right. sharding data. Those were things that there were a lot of early internet pioneers that were all dealing with those things, but a lot of the now disciplines of them were actually defined by some of the early technical work at Google.
0: Fascinating. So when you're on the cusp of new industries and you're creating and inventing, it's not the easiest thing to maintain composure and be wonderful and have a nice like kind and caring culture. Sometimes you have to be abrupt and sometimes you have to tell people like it is, you have to be honest with your feedback. And in the New York Times article that came out, you know, you mentioned that Larry and Sergey weren't afraid to raise their voice if they needed to with certain people in certain situations. Do you feel like Silicon Valley has kind of like has lost that or maybe turns their nose up at that a little bit?
1: I don't, because I think that, you know, in the world of startups, it's just, it just makes good sense. Sure. Right. You know, you have a scarcity of resources, you have a real scarcity of time. And I think in those moments, you don't necessarily think of it as being rude or ill-mannered. It's just a matter of that, you know, to actually like get everything done that needs to get done. Because the stakes are so high. You need to be concise. Sure. And so I think that- in the world of startups and in the world of fast-moving technology, people are pretty forgiving around that. Which isn't to say—I mean, I would say that you know, Google always had a very respectful culture, which right. I'm really grateful for. There was always a lot of respect in all directions.
0: Their culture is amazing. My wife works there uh, yeah. today, by the way. It's fantastic.
1: And it was always—it was always a great, a great culture. But no one took offense at the fact that they spent someone spent two minutes explaining why the answer was no, as opposed to fifteen.
0: So as Google is starting to hit rocket ship growth and there's an IPO in the future, I'm trying to get my timeline right here, but there's the Sequoia investment, I think a year later, there's the Yahoo investment and then IPO. Is that roughly?
1: No. I mean, so we, it's funny because we felt like we were like the grandfatherly IPO
0: <laughs> because gotcha. like what
1: happened was we took the Sequoia and the Kleiner Perkins investment the same month that I started.
0: Oh wow! And then
1: the next year, when Yahoo selected us as their search search engine, they put some money into the company.
0: Okay. And then when
1: we renewed the contract the next year, I think they put some more money into the company, along with some other investors. But we didn't go public until 2004. Okay. And so basically, it took about six years, which in startup world, (laughs) like either you know, in 1999, either you were going public in 18 months to two years, or you weren't going to. But what happened to us was and at the time it was scary, but it became healthy, is, you know, we experienced the first, that first bubble burst, like March of 2000, tons of startups go out of business. Yahoo's market cap takes this huge plunge, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's kind of memes, like you'd just hear it in passing on television shows or movies, like the web is dead, or like the web died this month. Sure. And, you know, and through all of that, like it really meant that for a long time, the door was closed and you know we had to do a really good job running the company in a way that was frugal and a way that was really focused on getting to cash flow positive and profitable and it meant that our IPO was was suppressed which i would say was actually a good thing because it allowed us to be focused on the quality of the product the quality of the business and then when we ultimately hit the 500 shareholder Rule that caused us to to have to go public, or at least to be reporting publicly, even if we didn't take an investment. Right. You know, we had had a, a lot of time where we were really inwardly focused, and we were. And I will say, like, there were a lot of us who were worried about going public. Where you're like, wait, you know, you don't want the stock ticker to affect the employees' mood. Right. Right. You don't want to feel like, wait, like we actually just released a great feature, but our stock was down today, and the and our competitor's stock was up. Does that mean? It wasn't great right like you don't want to have a signal it's a huge that's distraction not, it's a big distraction but also it's noisy yeah and sometimes it's a, it's a trailing indicator by definition and so you don't want people making decisions on really forward-looking things right based on the mood of a trailing indicator
0: right and i think bezos talks a lot about this where the work he does today or the stock price today is reflected on work they did four years ago or something along those lines but
1: Good yeah. to keep in mind. But for us, it was nice because we had been able to be very inwardly focused for a long time and not had that distraction. And even then, once we did go public, Larry and Sergey were very careful, and Eric were very careful to set the tone that it was a financing you know it was a financing event for the company, and they didn't really want to change the way it operated, to the point where Sergey didn't even attend the IPO in New York. He made a point of staying in Mountain View and going and visiting engineers in their cube and asking them about their projects
0: that's a strong statement. I I really love that story. So your final role at Google was you were running Maps and Geo or
1: was that? Yeah. Over the the course of the years, I moved into product management, ran the search business and related products for about 10 years. And then at the end, I moved into running Maps and local and all Geo related services.
0: Which is a massive business unit now at Google. Geo's kind of starting to be a rocket ship.
1: Even then it was, there were about 12,000 people at Google, about a thousand of them we're in in wow. in terms of full time yeah, employees, that many then. and yeah. um, and th- and then we also had the Street View drivers, which they are part time contractors. But there's like at the time there were like six or seven thousand Street View drivers, so there was this, uh, you know, ultimately a many thousand person division.
0: When did you decide or start to think about leaving Google for the next adventure?
1: I didn't. So the next, you know, Yahoo presented itself to me. I got a call from a headhunter and I thought that that it was the same recruiter who had put me on the Walmart board. And so I thought he was just calling for like the cursory, like, congratulations, you've been voted onto the board, it's finally (laughs) happened. And he was like, by the way, he's like, I'm not calling about Walmart, I'm calling about a different opportunity where your name has come up. And, you know, and he talked to me a lot about the company. And it was funny because I had a lot of people had pointed out to me that it would be an interesting opportunity for me, but I was really scared to raise my hand. For a lot of reasons, because you know, Yahoo's seen from the outside as a place that really didn't necessarily know itself and what it wanted to do and where sure. it wanted to be, particularly in terms of the board directions, but also because I was really happy at Google. And I was working on really interesting things. And, you know, I was I was quite happy to stay there. At the time, also when I got that phone call, I was twenty four weeks pregnant. And I was like, look, like I'm just I've got a <laughs> bunch of different projects, including like Google Maps on iPhone and things like that that are all scheduled to basically launch yeah. like the month before my baby comes. And like I'm just gonna get all these projects launched, like have my baby, be on a nice long <laughs> maternity leave, come back, you know, figure out what I want to do next year at Google. Like, you know, I, I didn't have any idea I would be leaving, especially then. Like I had my whole plan kind of locked and loaded already in terms of how I wanted to handle it and what I wanted to do. I hadn't necessarily disclosed it at work yet. But that said, I felt like the Yahoo opportunity was so special that I had to consider it. And I heard myself, it's kind of funny because he described this company and I I thought it was a different company that had also been looking for a CEO and I had gotten several calls from them earlier and I just had like, no, not interested, no, not interested. So I said, oh, I think I know what company you're talking about and no, I'm not interested. And he was like, well, it's Yahoo. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, it's Yahoo. I was like, he's like, are you interested? I was like, yes. And it was so funny because he he was like, really? And I was like, yes, I'm really interested. So
0: yeah, that's the type of thing. You don't tell somebody yes, unless you're very, very serious about it.
1: But I mean, it's one of those out of body experiences where I heard myself say yes and then be like, yeah, like it is something I've always, I've always had a lot of respect for. Yahoo. I was really grateful to the role it played in the early internet, the role it played particularly at Google. But the friends I had had worked through over the year were incredible technologists and also just really nice people. Yeah. I love just separate from technology. I love art. And I talked to a gallery owner I really respect once. I said, you know, who do you bring into your gallery? And one of the things he said is he's like, I always bring in nice people. And his theory was, he's like, well, one, life is too short to work with people who aren't just nice. But two, he's like, for an artist, you feel their mood and their temperament in the work. And I think the same thing is true of technologies. Definitely. Right? If the person is unhappy yes. or not that thoughtful about people- The emotion gets translated like like into the media. It actually gets into translated the into yeah. the product in terms of the way it does things and the feedback it gives the user. And you could just tell by using Yahoo that the people there were really nice and- like had a lot of fun and joy. Right? They had a real joie de vivre, as they said, as they would say, and and I really, you know, I'd always respected that about the company.
0: So you decided to make the leap when you got there. What did you find? What was the first maybe couple weeks like?
1: I would say, you know, it was exhilarating to be there because. It was a lot of the problems I had always worked on. It was search. It was email. It was maps. It was mobile. There were social components. It was a lot of the stuff I had worked on at Google, but it was an entirely new context with new people, new advantages, new disadvantages, and I just really love atmospheres where you learn that much. Yes. Right. And so I was like learning so much in such an intense period of time. And I was like, and in all truthfulness, I probably wasn't as good at it, right? <laughs> like at Google, you know, there were so many things that had just come up over the years in such a base of knowledge that, you know, you know maybe there was a course of the day I could handle like a hundred things coming up and just know exactly what to do next on all of them. At Yahoo, it was slower going, right? It might be more like 25 or 30 things that were coming up in any given day. But, you know, learning something new with each and every decision, each and every conversation, which I just really, I really loved that. So I was really very excited about Yahoo. And also I like design and I take a very broad view of design because some people would say, oh, you mean like the design of chairs and modern furniture or and like, no, I think of design broadly as like design problems, design thinking sure, and trying to come in take Yahoo, say, okay, like there's a lot that works about this company and there's a lot that doesn't work about this company. How can I design a team, a product portfolio, an ultimate setup where we can really thrive was the biggest, hardest, and most interesting design problem I've ever got to work on.
0: So when you're working on what sounds like a very, very difficult design problem, are you referring to books? Are you referring to experts? Are you How are you putting together your team of rivals, you know that proverbial team to handle it.
1: You're relying a lot on experience, you're relying a lot on the people who are there. You know, one of the things I said is that, well, I got there and on a second they said, "When will your strategic kickoff meeting be?" Cuz remember, I was the seventh CEO in 61 months. Wow. So, like they were the, the people there were just totally used to like a new CEO rides into town, rolls out the strategic presentation of what they're going to do the next day. Yeah and everybody's
0: just keeping track and like and and they and i said
1: i'm gonna just talk to people and listen for about 90 days and maybe once i'm about a quarter into it i'll present my strategy and i said because look like there's a lot of very smart talented people here who've been here for a long time if solving yahoo's problems and and finding the particular formula that works was easy yeah someone would have done it a long time ago sure and so I was like, you know, I really felt that you you had to, like, listen to the people who were there. And one of my favorite stories of the early days, I would go down, I'm a shy person, but I would make a point of going down to the cafeteria every day and just sitting down at a table and just talking to anyone who would talk to me. <laughs> I was in the cafeteria and I had my tray and I was walking around and, like, someone came over and, like, tapped the tray and said, like, Is it go time? (laughs) And I was so used to people leaving. I mean, Yahoo had experienced 24% attrition in the first six months of 2012 before I got there. Wow. Which means one in four Yahoos had walked out the door during those six months. And I thought the person was saying, like, I'm leaving. Like, you know, and I was like, I was like, oh, please don't leave. And he's like, I'm not talking about leaving. (laughs) He was like, look, there's a bunch of us that have been sitting here for years waiting for the board and management to like sort itself out. right? And we all have our ideas about what Yahoo should be and what we should do and what would make us great again. And he's like, is it go time? He's like, can we just run and do what we think needs to be done in order to fix this company? And I was like, yes, by all means. Like, Don't let me please, slow you down. Please, right? help. Like, fast. And you know, I was like, my job is to like get the things that are getting in the way out of the way and let the team run. So... By all means, go, go time. <laughs> like,
0: That's so exciting. And I love the idea too, of just being patient and respecting the intellect. And because so many people jump into new situations and assume that they have all the context, but it's, so it took about 90 days then it sounds like to get up fully briefed on the situation, right?
1: Yeah. And also just understand like, what are some of the best ideas that people have Yeah, and what's what's already going well, what's been tried and isn't going that well.
0: Yeah. Especially too, when it's I find anyways that oftentimes the shy people the more introverted types sometimes they have the best ideas and it's just you know creating that culture of getting people to speak up and sharing their ideas is pretty difficult how did you go about making yahoo into a meritocracy of ideas not saying that it wasn't before but how did you maybe improve the information sharing amongst colleagues and executives and yeah well
1: i made a real point to at each of the meetings, my probably the first six months of meetings at the end of every meeting, doing around the room, and it was brisk. But you know, basically making sure that even somebody who'd been sitting there the whole time, right, not saying something, trying to understand, like were they doubters? Were they? Did they agree with everything that had been said? And so, making sure that you really sweep the room was something that was was really important. But also, I think it's the David Kelly book, The Art of Innovation. He talks about. In companies, there's information brokers and there's information fountains. And there's some people who are like, they get an idea or they hear about something and they kind of keep it to themselves and decide who they're going to tell, tell you know, about this idea or sure. about this work. And then there's other people who just like, just spew their ideas, other people's ideas, you know, just talk, talk about them all the time because they don't care who picks up the idea and runs with it, right? They right. care more about it becoming a reality. And I tried to set a culture where at Yahoo!, people understood that information fountains were gonna be rewarded a lot more. And that kind of over communication that happens would be rewarded a lot more than information brokers. And this notion of just like, well, I've got this report, I've got this view. yes, like, yeah. you can't see it. We started really stressing transparency. I mean, we did that through, we had a big meeting every Friday where for an hour we would go over all the un- upcoming unreleased products. And we'd also spend about a half an hour With my whole executive team there answering questions whatever the company wanted to talk about the good the bad the ugly and it really at first was a very anxious moment for the company up until then the company had had a lot of leaks and also you know it was just something where like wait they just hadn't really talked about like that's not going very well or this is going really well but you know it really became a core staple ultimately of of the culture and i think that by giving people the access to and the responsibility of all that information, you know, by the time we left, there was there were almost no leaks, right? It would be like wow. one one a year, where it used to be like multiple every day. And I think that was because people were like, "Wait, like if the company will trust me with this kind of insight and this kind of information that it has to stay confidential," like there was an implicit respect for that, and it really changed it. And also, once you get to a point where interests are aligned, people have access to the information, you really have achieved that. New culture where people feel like, okay, I can, you know, I've got a very sensitive piece of information or a sensitive detail. I can share it. It's not going to go anywhere that it shouldn't. It's going to be used right. in the right way.
0: That's really, really cool. I had no idea about all of that. But so during your tenure at Yahoo, we have a couple of the things that you achieved here, which is like, it's very, very impressive. There's roughly like a three times stock price increase, around $43 billion of market capitalization was added. You added roughly four apps Yahoo, Yahoo Finance, Sports, Fantasy Sports became one of three internet companies with 1 billion users, a buyback of shares, roughly 27% of shares were bought back, and ultimately you ended with a very successful acquisition to Verizon. How do you view your time at Yahoo?
1: Well, some of those things I'm very proud of, some of those things I can't take credit for. So we do feel that you know we were good stewards of capital. We had an amazing investment in Alibaba. Alibaba itself was a rocket ship, and so, it,
0: solid investment. There. And it,
1: and you know, that was done by Jerry Yang, our founder, and you know, that really took Yahoo far, and frankly, gave us time, right, right, that was really needed to try and 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 rebuild the company the right way because of all of the different things that had happened over the years, all the CEO turmoil, the attrition, things like that. So you know, those are things I can't ultimately take credit for. I do think we did a good job. You know, When I first got to the company, the, the reigning thesis was sell the Alibaba investment right then. In fact, as I joined the company, half of our investment was sold. And basically, you know, probably, I haven't done the math lately, but probably left somewhere between 25 and $40 billion of value on the table through that sale. Because our, our remaining stake, which was the other half, is today worth about 40. And we made about, I think, between like somewhere on the order of three to $5 billion off of that sale. So it was meaningful for the company sure. to do it at that time. But, you know, us really having a view that Alibaba was incredible and was going to become one of the reigning companies of the day, was important and being good stewards of capital in terms of when to do share buybacks how to do it in a way that was really accretive to our shareholders and made a lot of sense you know i feel like we did a good job on that in terms of the core company basically they had just missed mobile and so i can't take credit for coming up with yahoo sports or yahoo finance or yahoo weather those all existed back from the 1999 days but they hadn't made the leap to the phone and if they had they hadn't made the leap in a coherent way where people knew it was Yahoo. There was no Yahoo Finance on the phone. There was something called Market Dash. Right. There was no Yahoo Sports on the phone, even though it's a beloved brand. There was Sportacular. And so we said, wait, like we need to tie this back to the brands that people love from the web. And we need to get this working on the phone, in native apps, where people understand that this is both Yahoo and the things I do on the web translate to my phone and vice versa. If mm. I follow a stock on my phone, it shows up on my watch list on the web, things like that, and really start to bring the, the, the company forward. And I feel like our strategy of moving into mobile, moving into native ads as the right way to monetize mobile, You know, all, a lot of those calls using native apps right. rather than HTML5, those were all all decisions that we made very early without a lot of information. And history has now shown that they were the correct decisions, but they weren't obvious at the time. And I feel really good that we had a team that was able to look at those scenarios and, and pick the right mobile strategy.
0: So when you're making a decision like that, that is going against conventional wisdom outside the company, is there anything you look for or any tips you could provide to maybe the other startup CEOs or established CEOs that are listening to this to make better decisions make bolder, contrarian bets, maybe.
1: Well, I think one of the things you want to do is you you want to have a very good intuition for where industries are going, and that should inform your strategy. By example, when I got to Yahoo, it wasn't just iOS and Android. People forget in 2012, people were still developing for Rim and Blackberries. people were still developing for Microsoft. Sure, right? They were still developing for all kinds of different operating systems. Basically, I had the view that, like, I was like, this becomes a duopoly. It's going to become an Android and an iOS world. Right. Try as the others might. And we should plan for that. And we should stop diverting development energy into these other smaller platforms. But further, if you say, wait, if we're really only developing for two platforms, you don't need to do things like HTML5. Right. HTML5 is an optimization that allows you to go to many platforms at once. If you say, like, look, we're really just building for these two because they're the ones that are going to matter, then you say, wait, we need to change our entire development strategy because HTML5, while it's very versatile across platforms, is sometimes slow. Mm-hmm. It's not as performant as native apps. And so, you know, it kind of, you know, that was one of the key decisions that we made at the time. And Adam Cahan, who headed at my mobile group, and I made that together and we had the same view. We were like, in the end of the day, there's two that will matter. Right. But if you would take that thesis and you know, extend it through your product strategy, you'd say, okay, then all this HTML5 development and we had a big program called Mocktails, which was building APIs to make HTML5 development easier. You're like, that whole strategy is just wrong, right? And we've gotta go native app, you know, completely. And it's actually tractable to do if you're doing it on two platforms.
0: And it sounds like you're basically aware of the fact that if you're gonna have a good partnership with somebody and they're a massive company, if they're growing a lot, you might wanna invest a lot into those partnerships. So you were taking a posture, it sounds like, of betting on the winners early on.
1: You need to, to your point, you need to watch where the growth is, because I would say that, interestingly, because Android and iOS were both growing so large, there weren't things, for example, like incentives being offered to develop on those platforms, where some of the other platforms were actually offering incentives help from their team, sure. you know, reimbursements for engineering time spent developing for those platforms. And so there certainly was a moment of like, wait, you essentially get development on these other platforms for free. Why not do it? Right. Right. And you'd be like, because it's actually going to cause us to make the wrong technical decisions. If we had kept trying to develop for four or five platforms, we would have developed in HTML5. But if you just say, wait, like I understand I'm giving up potentially free labor and free product right. development here, but I'm going to be doing it because I ultimately will get my products onto much faster growing platforms. That's the right trade-off to make, even though it is, in essence, it costs you more.
0: Definitely. So what was the best lesson that you learned about time management and productivity at Yahoo? Because you were doing a ton.
1: I think that the biggest thing is prioritization. And you have to have a really clear sense of priorities overall. And so for me, it was really my family first and Yahoo. And I had to accept that anything else that actually managed to squeeze itself in, coffee with a friend, getting to go to you know someone's surprise party up in San Francisco, if that happened... It was like a ticker tape parade, right? (laughs) Because like most of those things, like there was just no room for them. Family and Yahoo took up all the space. And so, you know, if it was like once every six months, I'd be like, wow, I could actually make this thing beyond Yahoo and family work. It was really, really pretty amazing. But at the same time, I was like, wait, like my family is the most important thing. And having this big opportunity and this big set of responsibilities is by far the next thing. And you're like, that might mean that... Some of these other things have to fall off, at least for now. And I think that's the right, you know, when you kind of go back to basic priorities and principles, Mm -hmm. that's the right way to allocate your time. You have to say, look, I have to, you have to understand your overall responsibilities and how you want to prioritize them and understand that, you know, you can't do everything, but you've got to do the things that really matter to you.
0: And it's something, too, where you can circle back and catch up with people. Like friends are still going to be friends after your uh, sprint or your marathon is completed, right? Did you circle back after that and kind of catch up with some people or?
1: I mean, certainly it's been nice to have some time post Yahoo, pre Lumi, where my, my dance card was a little bit less full. But I would say that basically people ask a lot about balance and ultimately in these kinds of roles and with new families, you're, you're by definition out of balance. right? And you have to be accepting of that, but just say like, yes, look, I'm out of balance right now, but I've got my priorities straight. I'm spending time on the right things.
0: I love it. So at Lumi Labs right now, you're hiring, the team's growing. Anything else that you're excited about? Any types of engineering talent or machine learning talent that you're looking for right now?
1: Sure, so as I said, we've hired about 12 people so far so we're growing and we are hiring we're hiring full stack engineers as well as machine learning engineers and at all levels of experience so we are hiring some new college grads and we are hiring experienced people in the industry and so far it's been it's been terrific we actually i think now have our engineering team has been roughly 50-50 50% women 50% men and which is kind of kind of nice because our founding team my founder Enrique Muniz Torres You know, we're 50-50, and and so the company's kind of grown in scale and in that proportion. But overall, it's, it's been terrific. And we think that the culture's coming together really nicely. You know, everyone is to the point of, like, life is too short to work with people who aren't nice. Absolutely. We've got people, you know, who we really respect their abilities, but also they're nice, fun people to work with.
0: And how did you first meet Enrique? I think it was through work.
1: Enrique and I now have worked together. I was like, wow, we were really that old. But I believe I hired him 15 years ago, 14 or 15 years ago. He was a new grad out of MIT, and I hired him into a program I ran at Google called the Associate Product Manager Program.
0: And how important do you think shared history with a co-founder is like that?
1: I don't know that it's it's hard to get perspective because it's the first company I've ever founded. I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs over time. I've bought a lot of companies over time. And so I've seen a lot of different entrepreneurial relationships. But you know, for us, I will say it's nice because we do have a common set of experience. So there's a lot of conversations where I can imagine if you hadn't worked together before, it would be an hour long of you Catch saying up. like, well, when I saw this happen at Google or when I saw this happen at Yahoo, this is how it ultimately played out. Sure. Where with us, we can just use shorthand. Like Google News, and he's like exactly right. <laughs> like we knew exactly, like we we know exactly what that means. Um, right. For a long time, one of my longtime managers at Google was a guy named Jonathan Rosenberg, and his father was a world famous economics professor at Stanford. And he said economists are like amazing because they argue. I don't know if this is true, so I haven't <laughs> been to these conferences. But he would go to these. Jonathan would go to these conferences, and he'd be like, they argue by number, <laughs> and he's like, there's basically about a hundred or so. Economic arguments, and someone puts together a new economic theory. He's like, and everyone looks at it and thinks about it, and then they'll be like seven, <laughs> and then someone else will be like, I counter with thirteen, <laughs> like, and like you know, and it's sort of interesting. And like Enrique and I aren't quite that concise, but we have that same kind of shorthand where it doesn't have to be a long discussion or a long argument on things. And that's energizing. We can just talk, you know, just be like, yeah, seen that situation before. Like we know what to do and we don't have to spend a lot of time rationalizing it or discussing it.
0: Yeah, when you have that type of mind melt or whatever you want to call it or camaraderie or rapport with somebody, it's almost like energizing. You can tackle bigger problems than you could with people that you don't have the history with. So what's your goal with Lumi Labs for next year? So if we were to fast forward to next Christmas, holiday time, New Year's, and if you're taking a moment to relax with your family, looking back on the year at Lumi Labs, what are you going to be thinking about that you've accomplished? What are you going to be most proud of?
1: Well, I would say at Lumi Labs, we're in a hurry. And Mickey and I both are very impatient people. We want things to happen quickly, but we also want to take a long view. So I'm not sure that one year is the right time period to look at it in terms of the lens. But I will say, I hope that by this time next year, it's not called Lumi Labs anymore. That was always meant to be a working title. I sure. hope that we've got our first products out, that we've renamed the company, that we're working on building out our product portfolio. I hope that you know over the next year, we like at least double in size, You know, if not more than double in size. So you know, we, were, we have kind of an informal goal of getting to maybe 20 people by the end of this year. So I'd hope that we're kind of at about 2X that by this time next year. And I hope that our main objective, which is the objective of a lot of startups, but we really do mean it, is to change the world. We want to affect the lives of our users in a positive and profound way. It's been a privilege to work at both Google and Yahoo. And on the sale to Verizon, we had to try and summarize Yahoo's impacts, right? We knew that we were going to write this blog post that said the company had been sold. And we wanted to take and kind of encapsulate what Yahoo had been for people up to that time as part of that blog post. And so we had this major brainstorming session where we put all these different like people met and got married right people did this right? you know like all the different ways that people's lives had been touched and we were trying to figure out like okay you know how do you group these kinds of outcomes and these kinds of outcomes and like you know bullet point them into (laughs) all these different sections of this blog post and then suddenly someone just said the simple point is that yahoo is a company that changed the world and very few do there's a lot of successful companies in the world, and then there's ones that really touch people's lives and change how people think and how they conduct their day-to-day lives. And you know, we really hope that Lumi Labs does something like that. But when, in that kind of goal, one year is too short to really measure it. The impacts oh, are seen much, much, much later.
0: Very cool. So to finish things up here, start to wrap things up with the interview. We have a series of lightning round questions. So are you ready for them? Sure. Okay. Favorite book or books could be just a book you've read over the last year. The Design of Everyday
1: Things by Dylan Norman.
0: Love it. What about apps? Any one or two apps on your home screen that you love?
1: I do like, I like Yahoo Finance a lot. I'm a prolific Uber user and was an early investor in Uber. And I think it's just a great, a great service. But like both Yahoo Mail and Gmail, they're both on my home screen. I prefer them to the native mail app that ships with the phone. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think if there's others. I've been experimenting with different like family sharing apps. I used this okay. the app called Path for a long time, yeah. but it recently shut down and now I'm using one called Tiny Beans. You know, I've been experimenting with that, but I really like, you know, utility apps that help you get everyday things Same. done. So I would say, you know, mail, finance. News. I've been using Apple News in addition to Yahoo News a lot lately. Apple
0: News is pretty solid. It's kind of growing Uber, fast. You
1: know, is, is, the, is how I generally get around.
0: Favorite album or playlist?
1: You know, it's funny. I love music, but I am I have not been really constructing playlists. That said, my son has over the past three years built a playlist with his dad. And so I would say like, he, now he's got a couple of playlists, but I think I like MZMB. which is like those are his initials and so like there's mzmb and there's mzmb disney or mzmb movies i heard it was called so i like his classic mzmb that has things on it like wild night and in the jungle and (laughs) all kinds of fun songs that we have a real we have a really fun time as a family having like dance parties too
0: yeah I love that. So if you do have time to put your feet up, are you watching a movie? Are you watching an original series on TV? Or do you not watch TV?
1: Well, I tend to watch, you know, somewhere between like zero and an hour a day. It's very rare that I watch more than an hour. But I have always liked kind of ensemble dramas. So I, I like, I think, you know, tons of people like, well, I watch Grey's Anatomy. So, I, you know, I've been with Grey's Anatomy for a long time. I've liked The Good Doctor the past two, two years. I also like This Is Us. Maybe because I have twins and there's triplets on the show. And so it's kind of interesting to like think about the relationship among multiples. Sure. And, you know, so I I like those kinds of of dramas overall. I also am really addicted. I just think like The Crown from Netflix is like one of the best television shows ever made.
0: Very cool. Marissa, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Is there anything that you wish people would ask you in interviews that I haven't asked that you want to share or maybe that you just want to leave our listeners with?
1: No, I don't think so though. I will throw in one plug cuz my my day job right now is Lumi Labs right. and I am doing something small on the side called The Corner House. Okay, cool. And I basically bought a commercial facility a few years ago that operated until 2013 as a mortuary. It is, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're like, wait, like what were you thinking <laughs> buying a mortuary, but it's a great piece of land and a great facility right off of University Avenue and I'm trying to reinvent it as a center for working moms, families, kids, oh, so after cool. school enrichment, all of those kinds of things. And you know, that's something I'm really passionate about is how can you be a resource in the community, bring families closer together and you know, over the course of the interview we've talked a lot about how do you integrate work and family life together and i hope that that side project even though it's you know it doesn't have the the kind of global ambitions that lumi labs has it you know it's something that i think could be a a great resource for the the community and hopefully we'll start off a trend i'm finding there's people all over the world that are kind of attempting similar things and we'll see sort of what what comes out of that which is exciting too
0: that is Marissa, this has been amazing. Thanks so much. And for everybody listening, they can find you on Twitter. They can find Lumi Labs, LumiLabs.com. And the Corner House, is there a website or?
1: Coho. So we okay. call it Coho for short. So Coho.com.
0: Coho.com. Awesome. See everybody next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
1: Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast.
0: It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.